Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reading Party Podcast with Megan and Lexi. This episode continues our season looking at stories inspired by or set in ancient Egypt. Some of the material includes themes of violence or sexual assault. It is not suitable for under-18s. We hope you have your favourite beverages and snacks ready to go, because we've got our teas and are ready to start spilling the tea on our latest ancient story. Just a quick housekeeping note before we get started on part two of Wilbur Smith's novel Warlock. There are some pretty graphic sexual assault scenes in this section of the book that we will be discussing, not in great detail, but there is a discussion. So please do listen with care. Warlock. Warlock. The second half of Warlock. Yeah. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. (laughs) Oh, yes. So we ended with Troc and his armies pursuing Taita and Nefer and Mintaka across some sand dunes. And that pursuit kind of carries on for a while. And there's a little bit of like worry that they're going to get caught. They have a giant sand mud pit that they have to go over. But then they double back and trick Troc's armies. And it's all very exciting and wonderful. And then it looks like they're going to get caught again. And Taita calls up this massive dust storm, which buries Troc's entire army, kills pretty much everyone. Troc almost captures Mintaka. It's all very exciting. And then he kind of gives up and goes home by himself with Ishtar the Mede. And then no one goes to Babylon. I didn't entirely catch why they decided to not go to Babylon and let Nefer like build up his strength there, which was the plan the whole book. Literally the whole book. This is this is Taita's first plan when Nefer's father is killed. But no, for some unknown reason, I'm sure it's magical, they don't go. They retreat to a ruined city and kind of nurse their wounds and build their strength and take in deserters from Troc's army and from Naja's army and build everything up. And it's all, all again, very exciting. And in the middle of that, Troc and Naja go to Babylon themselves. So we do get a brief trip to Babylon. Oh my God. We will get into that shortly. But they take a trip to Babylon, conquer the city as you do. And while they're doing that, Nefer uh, runs the Red Road, which is this trial of like strength and endurance and fighting. And it's fighting to the death. So it's all very, very manly. And there's cockfighting and wrestling and archery and javelins and also running horses everywhere. I did enjoy the horse bits. That was fun. And he succeeds, which means that he is officially the pharaoh. I don't think this was a thing. I'm like 99% sure that pharaohs didn't have to prove themselves. They were just born from royal parentage and then, hooray, it's another pharaoh. But in this book, they have to prove themselves and they either have to catch this, this royal hawk or they have to run the Red Road. Never heard of the Red Road before. I suspect it's a literary invention, but when we get an Egyptologist in here, I will be asking them that. But he succeeds, hooray, his friend Meron nearly dies, very dramatic, but Mary Kara, who is Nefer's sister, who they 
earlier rescued from the uh, the caravan of, of Naja as he's going off to Babylon. She falls in love with him and nurses him back to health. And even though he has a fucking seizure and is starving to death because of an infected wound in his lung, despite all of that, after she nurses him through his seizures, she falls asleep on top of him and wakes up and he has an erection and they have sex. And I'm like, what? Okay, I know that there are many people who are just good to go as soon as they wake up. I don't think people who are starving to death have infected lung wounds and have just suffered major seizures are in that list. So that was uh, unsurprising, in all honesty, very unsurprising. And he recovers and it's all lovely and happy. We have a brief sojourn in Babylon. We find out what's going on there. Troc kills a bunch of people, manages to get into the city through some subterfuge. There's some weird stuff with the god Marduk, the destroyer, which is a name known nowhere in history. And then there's a, a message that comes and says that, that Nefer has, has passed the Red Road Test and is being hailed as the one true pharaoh of Egypt. And you have to get back there now and kill him. So Troc fucks off back to uh, back to Egypt, mainly because he wants to kill Mintaka. Actually, this is a recurring theme. She has impugned his manhood, which is uh, not, a, not a good thing in this book, in the slightest. And he wants to kill her or sexually assault and murder her. It's all very icky, to be honest. And this book should come with like 8 million trigger warnings for sexual assault. So he he makes his way back and Saita and Nefer manage to trick him and uh, rout the entire army. Troc is killed. Mintaka does actually have the killing blow, which I enjoyed quite a lot. She deserved that much. So he dies. Taita manages to finally defeat and kill Ishtar the Mede. And I'm sorry, just the name still is... If you listened last week, you know that Ishtar is a female deity this is not how Mesopotamian names work. And also, he's not even Mesopotamian. He's a Mede. He's a, he's a different culture. Completely, no, no. Yes, very sad. Didn't like that. And so Troc is, is defeated. And then Nefer gathers the army again and sets traps for Nefer, who has also learned that he is now the one true pharaoh because Troc is dead. So there is no more divided monarchy. He has the whole monarchy to himself. And his wife, Harriset, is also very excited about this because she's still there. So they all kind of run back to Egypt. And we're not really given a time scale for this, but Egypt and Mesopotamia are quite far apart. So I suspect it would have taken longer than maybe uh, is suggested in the books. But you know what? Suspension of disbelief. So they run back, ultimately are defeated. But in the mix of that, Mintaka and Merikare have tricked everyone because they're women and they're wily and cunning and, and you know, can't trust them. And they have snuck back to Naja's army to talk to a general that Mintaka used to know. And she's persuaded him to defect to uh, Nefer's army because Naja actually killed her father, who was this general's prior pharaoh and, and like bestest friend or, or at least good friend. So those two women are in the, the enemy camp as it were, in Naja's camp with Hereset, who is, if you will all remember, Mary Kare's elder sister, Nefer's sister, and is, for some unknown reason, madly in love with Naja and very much enamored with the fact that she is queen of Egypt, goddess, if you will, and she certainly will. So they're they're there, and then Hereset finds them, and you think, oh God, this is not, this is not going to end well. But then it cuts back to the final battle. 
and Nefer kills Naja. He is finally, finally undisputed ruler, pharaoh of Egypt. There's no other pretender to the throne. And that news is carried back to Hereset, who is deeply distraught to find out that her beloved husband has died. Even though the last time we saw them together, they were having quite the matrimonial argument because he was going to have sex with one of his new wives and she had to stay with the rest of the women and she didn't like that very much. So she goes mad, storms into the commander's encampment area to try and persuade him to let her, I think, what go to the army, something I forget, and finds, surprise, surprise, Merikari and Mintaka, obviously recognizes them because one of them is her younger sister and proceeds to have them like tied up and locked in a bamboo cage thingy and ultimately kills Mary Carre in a deeply distressing, very violent, completely unnecessary manner. So massive trigger warning for that one, everybody. Lots of fun. And ultimately she is sentenced by Nefa. She has like no remorse for it. And she's given over to Marin, who was Mary Carre's betrothed. And he sounds like essentially he cuts her head off, which is a much nicer manner of death than I think we've seen in the rest of the book as a whole. The book ends with with Nefa and Mintaka finally getting married. Finally, there's been lots of sex, but they've not actually got married. But they're finally married. Hooray! And Taita and Meren are going off on some pilgrimage somewhere. We don't know where. It's not doesn't seem terribly relevant. They're just leaving. So, yes, in a nutshell, that's what happens. And I have to say, now, a little known fact about me, I used to be the editor for a women's essentially porn magazine. And I spent a lot of time reading some pretty bad erotic fiction, some fantastic erotic fiction also, but some some pretty bad stuff. And I had hoped I was done with that part of my life when uh, the magazine um, closed. And I'm not, because apparently Wilbur Smith is an amateur eroticist. He does not do a good job. I don't want to hear any more about nipples or about swollen members and prongs and graphic descriptions of men's foreskins. Um, no, thank you. I'm just, we all know what a foreskin looks like. If you don't, you can Google it. Google was kind of around when these books were written, but I don't need, no, no one needs to read that. Not in an historical novel that is, uh, yeah, like high, like low historical fantasy type stuff, but what? No, come on. So lots of gratuitous violence. So much gratuitous sex. Oh my God. If I have to read about someone else's prodigious buttocks, there are at least two women in this book described as having prodigious buttocks. I believe both of them are in fact African, which is, you know, a little on the racist side. Um, uh, yes, I could, I could talk for a long time about all of that. I'm not going to, but for the love of God, if I wanted to read porn, I'd find something decent. I don't want it mixed up in my historical fiction when it's so poorly done. Come on. Jesus Christ. You can't see this if you're listening as a podcast, but Lexi is like about to fall off her chair with laughter at my righteous indignation. I don't feel like you're taking me seriously, Lexi. 
I'm I'm about to like burst into tears. Oh. I need a moment to like compose myself. <laughs> <laughs> also, I'm learning so much more about Megan right now. <laughs> so like that adds that adds to my incapacitation. I need a sip of tea because I'm gonna like lose it otherwise. Wait, wait, I need I'm going to compose myself. And not choke on the tea would be a great <laughs> probably, thing. Yes, probably a good idea. I'd like, I'd like to not choke on this. Wait. <sighs> mm. Okay. Okay. That centers me because that was like scalding hot. And I think I just burned off the last of my taste buds. Okay. Well. Lexi, what did you think? I, um, again, read this when I was much younger. I don't know why, because if my mother knew how this book was written, I'm pretty sure she would not have let me read it. But, you know, she doesn't like this kind of historical fiction, right? I'm not going to go as far as to say she doesn't like all historical fiction, because she'll, she'll read, like, a good his- historical thing. But, like, my mom is not really into ancient history. She was never a history person. She's very much a radio person. She was kind of a, a voice actor and a theater person so she's a creative but yeah so she never really liked ancient history so this would be the kind of book that would sit on the shelf for her and she would kind of go like whatever that is it looks interesting but yeah not my jam so um I was happy to read it for her maybe she wouldn't have been happy to know I was reading it but yeah I didn't remember like any of the second half at all so as I was going through it I just remember being like Damn, the chase through the desert between Truk and Taita and like Mintaka and Nefer. That was long. Like that went on for ages. And like the breakdown in the audiobook, these chapters, like in, in some of the chapters from Warlock, you would have a chapter that was like as short as like five minutes, and then some that were like over an hour, but then a lot of them clocked in at like a reasonable anywhere between, I want to say like 10 and half hour 40 minutes each of these chapters was fucking like the shortest one was like 49 minutes so i was like oh god something's long if it's one chapter and i swear all of chapters like i want to say like 15 through 20 and each chapter mind you was like 50 minutes to an hour all of them were just the chase in the desert and like i was like oh my god this is now Overall, did I enjoy it the way I did the first time? Mm. Yes, because it's still entertaining. Did I pick up on all the horribly misogynistic and racist things? Yes. Did I miss those the first time? Ye- not really, but also I was young, so like it, I didn't know how much I probably missed some stuff. So I'm like going back. I was like, this is holy shit, like. Wilbur Smith, are you trying? Like, are you deliberately trying to be this offensive? Or does, like, he not even know? Does he just think he's trying to craft a visceral story? And, like, I don't even know what his deal is. This is why I'm like, I want to go back. And I really want to ask this man some questions. Like, I want to interview this man and be like, so, there were choices made, which are deliberate and cannot be seen as anything other than a deliberate choice. What happened? You know, I just want to ask him these things. 
Yeah, but 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 okay, I will say, I'm trying I'm trying to pick positives here, okay? Because I feel like I don't want it to just be Debbie Downers, but even though it'd be so easy to to do that, so I I will say I did enjoy when they're running from truck in the desert. I did kind of like the mystical magical element that I guess we're leaning into with Taita because you have like them going and falling into what I can only describe as quicksand, but like in the, in the middle of the desert, which fine, but I don't know if that's really where you'd find, but essentially you have the path veiled. So you have like a a valley of quicksand or, or whatever, and they have to paddle, shimmy, whatever, themselves like across to cross on boards of woods and use their arms as oars i think and i'm like is that consistent to physics because from my understanding with quicksand anything on it gets sucked down so i don't really know how realistic and plausible it is to because if the plank is is on it and you have weight so if your weight is on this plank i don't care how flat you are and you're trying to swim from from what I know of quicksand, and luckily I've never been stuck in it, but, like, it, it would just go down. Especially if it's not, like, a tiny hole. You know what? The quicksand, honestly, did such a mind fuck that I had to think about that one quicksand scene in the fucking Princess Bride, okay? I was That's like, where my mind goes to. Okay, because I was like, that's a tiny hole. Like, a small hole. And here she fucking goes, like, hmm, what is this lighter color sand? She takes one fucking step, and that thing just goes, like, like, zoop, and she just goes down. Okay? So, I'm trying to think. If she had, like, a plank, would she still just go, zoop, down? Like, that thing was fast. So, I don't know... How fast real quicksand sinks you? So Princess Bride quicksand could could have been entirely too fast. So quicksand could have been like, yeah, you step in it and then you you sink, but like it's not super fast, but like you're sinking and you have time to like scramble out. But my only favorite reference is Princess Bride. So I'm like, yeah, that shit like swallowed her up in the like fucking two seconds. So if it's like that quicksand, I'm like, there's no way this happens. So unless he's describing to me a different kind of quicksand or slow sinking sand but not quicksand that would make sense but okay I was going with it so that was like hilarious to read and I did appreciate that and then when Taita calls up this the mighty sandstorm that rages for like four days because apparently he can control how long this storm goes and he can control when he summons a storm because that was new I did like this idea that like he knew how to hide and protect them, sort of, and teach them what to do. So I did enjoy that. I don't know how realistic, again, that would have been. But, like, it sort of tracks. Like, okay, you hide in the kind of, like, a, a a deep well or a cave that's well insulated, so it's hard for sand to get you. I did kind of have really visceral reactions to, like, the accounts of them being buried up into sand. And I'm like, look... I broke my wrist in high school playing tennis and part of my recovery treatment is like they have like a massive box like like a huge box of like like weighted sand and I was supposed to put my very delicate wrist 
into the box of sand. And then there's like a button that they would press that would like zhuzh it up. So it's kind of like a therapeutic, sandy therapy thing. And it felt great. Like it did feel great. But I just remember that I would have to leave my hand in here for like 20 minutes, half hour, whatever it was. And then I would have to like vertically just like pull my hand out. Let me tell you, the wrist was stiff as hell. It was warm because the sand was heated and my skin was just dry as fuck. So I was always putting on like layers and layers of moisturizer because it's dry. So like, I kind of thought about that experience when I was thinking about like the descriptions of them and yeah. So I was like, Oh, this, this tracks. So like this sounds accurate because also like, even when I was like in the machine, like sometimes even before, like they'd turn the machine on or like after the machine ran, they'd be like, can you move your arm? Can you move your wrist within the sand? Can you pull it out or whatever? And trying to just move my hand through all this deep sand was like impossible. I was like, I, I could honestly go like, you know, I had limited range of motion. So I was like, that is not only accurate today, but I'm like, I'm, I'm positive that is also like accurate historically and stuff too. So I was like, yeah, that's fantastic. So that was uh, also historically accurate, I guess. I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of like other historical things I've seen, but I'm not an Egyptologist, so I can't really speak to it. But also, Marin, his middle name or second name was Cambyses, and I just want to be like, but we're no. not. Persian. Yeah, I was like, we're not, unless he's Persian, but they don't really explicitly state that he's like of Persian descent. So I'm kind of like, why is your name Cambyses? Also, at this point in particular historical time, Cyrus comes first. And he is. We've before... already established that history is not necessarily very important to these books, given that we have a fucking Sargon prancing around Mesopotamia. Yeah, but I, I just, I'm like, look, man, the original Cyrus isn't here yet, so it's impossible for Cambyses, and he's not making the claim that there's a Cambyses that starts in Egypt and then goes to. No, I'm like, no. Okay, like, if, if anything, the fucking Elamites are in Persia right now. So I'm like, I don't know what this is. This is weird. I enjoyed the desert stuff on all accounts. I, that might have been my favorite sequence. Should we, dare I call it, a love scene? Like, it wasn't, but it was, the you know what, the love hunt. The love hunt that Mintaka and Nefer go on when they're at Gable Nagara. Again, I was like, it's it's just as poorly done as the the weird wedding night romance of Naja and Hareset because I mean it was a little easier because I'm like okay well they're deeply in love and they've been in love for a long time and so it makes sense that she's like I've escaped this husband so obviously I've not been getting any because I'm still a virginal and she's you know you put two like teenagers together who are like hot and heavy for each other and what do you think is going to happen in the middle of the desert alone so I was like okay that tracks like it's one thing to write romance and and like talk about how you have like this sweet sort of love and how like you really want to like get with this person but the way it's written, you know, you, you get these weird, like, sort of expository, like, as she's, like, staring at him, she's just like, oh, yes. And she's eyeing his physique and his, his round buttock. And she's 
feeling things inside of her as she's looking, and so she's awkward and has to look away. I, I feel really lascivious even just explaining this because it's awkward and, like, pervy, but, like, it is literally written in the book, so please excuse my... It's not me being lascivious. But anyway, because then you have him being like, oh, yes, and he, like, looked at her, and then the 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 garment she's wearing can show... He can see everything because it's thin. All the women <laughs> wear see-through clothes. All of them, I think, every day wear see-through clothes. And yes, linen when spun very fine is 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 quite sheer. But oh God, just come on, really? So I don't know, like, because then you have this weird thing about how, like, she made him swear, she made never swear an oath that, like, he would be the one to take her maidenhead, but not until they were, like, married. And then you're like, well, obviously not when they're spending, like, months and months in the desert alone and they're hot and heavy so i don't know you you have this great not great but you have this interesting written love scene where finally she's like i'm gonna make out with him and i'm curiously looking at every detail of his body and you're like oh dear gods and then you're like (laughs) he's doing it too and then you're like okay well are we gonna skip it to eat somewhere so like are we going to get like a Tomb of Tross River God flashback where we're like, and they go into the sheltered place and have sex? No, what you get is like every detail, like, and she grabs him here. And then she does this. And then she's shocked. And then she feels, and I'm like, oh, dear gods, I don't want to. You know what? It, it's It's like the same reaction I had watching Fifty Shades of Grey. It, it was like me watching Fifty Shades, but like an ancient version of Fifty Shades. And I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh my God, is he going to have problems? And then no, it, it's not clear, but it is clear. But she essentially says he took her body to new heights and decided like she couldn't go beyond. And then they went beyond the beyond. And I was like, so I know what this means? <laughs> I was just like, God damn. I, look, man, I don't read like pornographic stuff in print. I've never read it in print in my life. I've only seen like the bad basic porno exposition shit that you'll get from media. So I'm just like, I don't even know how bad this, this is. This is not well written porn. I'm going to, as <laughs> not a current expert, but as someone with some experience in the field, this is not well written porn. Okay. Because I was just like, Well, also because it feels bad because it's like, he goes halfway. Like, he doesn't, like, if you're gonna go there, I feel like as someone who has not read it, but I'd be like, I guess if I was, like, wanting this, I'd be like, no, 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 okay, go everywhere, don't hide the fact, like, just fucking explain. It's weird. He gets, he gets very explicit, but he does it using weird euphemistic language. Like, if we're going to have a graphic sex scene, man up, uterus up, however you want to say it, and use the words that are in the dictionary. Don't, like, keep going with this stupid prong and member bullshit. It's a peanut. Right. So I'm like, just use words that we are expecting. So, yeah, like, 
I think both the graphic sex and the violent scenes that come up later, especially when you have this very misogynistic thing where, you know, of course, her it goes crazy because her husband is dead. And so then she's like, okay, now I need to murder my younger sister for some inexplicable reason and not the woman my brother wants to marry, which would have made a little more sense because she's not related to you. So what do you even call the murder of a sister? Like regicide is king, patricide is father. There's fratricide. Maybe fratricide. I don't know if that would be exclusively a male rela- a male sibling, though. Because I was like, I know fratricide usually is brother, but could it be used for females? I don't know. Because fraternal can also mean women, I guess. Okay, so Google tells me it's sororicide. That would make more sense. Because sorority, I suppose, is a sisterhood. So I had had two problems that I wanted to bring up, just related to what you said previously. One is the Nefer-Minitaka relationship. And the fact that they're having sex, like a lot of sex, and they're so happy and like exuberant when word gets to them that Troc divorced her. How is this, how is the divorce, like how is that binding you to anything? I mean, very legally, very technically, yes, she is married to someone else, but you're planning on killing this someone else anyway. And he's essentially a, a usurper, he's a pretender to the throne. So Part of me is like, well, the law doesn't necessarily apply to that relationship. So yeah, that was that was confusing because Minotaur is like, I'm free, and I get I get her excitement about not being even euphemistically, symbolically bound to this horrible, horrible man. But then Nefer says, Your freedom sets me free. I'm like, practically speaking, her being married to someone else has done nothing to either of you. To me, that's an instance where his modern ideas and sensibilities push through and mm. make its way into the historical because there there is no way to read into that other than clearly it's written into written by a modern person in a more modern time because the only way you would think of like the only time it matters is when in the at least 20th century like marriage and divorce means something and you're not having like 20 lovers on the side the way you would in like the 1800s or whatever so up until even pretty recently i want to say like marriage didn't really mean shit unless you happen to be unique and were like I'm i don't know I, I think for women it's always been very restrictive well for, especially yeah, for, the- for elite women and like i i i feel at least my understanding of Mesopotamian marriage law, you don't fuck with someone else's wife. So it restricts the woman from having any external affairs and it does place restrictions on other men. It's is not really, I mean, it, it's obviously done, but it's not, it's not like a free for all. That's true. I mean, okay, let me put it uh, nicely and just say like, Yes, for women, it's always been more restrictive, like even in ancient times, even in like the 1500s when you have all this shit, like War of the Roses shit, right? Like how unfair is it that Henry VIII could have all these fucking affairs and they're like, oh, it's expected. The minute there's a rumor of like Anne Boleyn or Catherine Howard, like having some type of affection, right? It's like cut off their heads. So like, yes, for women, it has always 
lesbian. Like if she's married, she is expected to be faithful to the husband. But we do know from history that there are women who got away with successful like affairs just under the nose. And it was like hidden by like with the help of either handmaids or friends or whatever the circumstances may be. So, so I will say it's been formally restricted for women. And unless there has been a culture, a place, a time where restrictions were put on men very clearly, as long as women could hide it and actually get away with it, I'm going to say it was like a free for all. Right. So there's always more nuance with the women where the women are concerned. But I don't know. I just feel like, you know, throughout history, like, I don't know, like without the bounds of like religion or women being seen as property. So like like excluding that, which are normally the reasons why you would look down on a woman right once she's married and you say, no, you can't touch because she's either someone else's property. So you're violating the man's property or religion so she's breaking about from god and now she's going to go to hell or whatever but like 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 excluding that i'm really trying to think like other than the more modern like 19th 20th century like i can't think of really people like voluntarily being like yes except for the rare causes it's not like it never happened but like you know how common was it for a man and a woman to be like yes i'm going to be faithful just to my spouse and not be out of physical, yeah, like out of emotional affection and respect rather than, yeah, I don't know. Uh-huh. Not, that's not something I've looked into. It just, it, it just seems like a weird thing. And the other thing was, I think it's Mary Kare at some point, like looks at Meryn and feels like all fluttery and weird and like she's attracted to him. And then, and then she feels something down in her body that she recognizes as her womb contracting. That, that was the single most ridiculous thing I think I read in the whole book. But he says that a lot for like a lot of other characters too. Like, well, maybe not. Womb yeah, but it's, it's like it's 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 described like just like a general like heat, maybe or tightening of the loins which you know yeah that 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 is that is something that is said but she specifies her womb contracting and it was just it was so ridiculous and i'm sorry i will stop talking about the stupidly written sex scenes just the womb thing was a step several steps too far for me and i yeah just wanted to complain about it oh no no for sure i mean if if you felt that i'm sure a lot of other people you know, and the thing is, like, it is supposed to be an action-packed second half where you get the, the chases and the, the conflict and the resolution. But you know what? Because of the way that the, the book is written, I'm I'm going to venture, I guess, that anyone who reads this also is going to be very distracted by, like, graphic sex and violent scenes. Because it does. Like, because it's, it's written so gratuitously that like it does take away from his final product and i wish that weren't the case because i'm like i would love to just concentrate on your story like dude i want to concentrate on the fucking story that's that's the that is the part i'm here for but he writes so much extra shit in that it's hard to not like focus on hyper focus on that i think we we talked about it last time that maybe the, the gratuitousness of both the sex and the the violence especially the sexual assaults that happens a lot in this book is maybe a way to make like overemphasize the fact that the bad guys really are just super duper bad 
And I think it, we just see the continuation of that in the rest of the book because Troc and Naja do some horrific things. Yes, in times of war, yes, there's a lot of like atrocities that go on. And I mean, the Assyrians are kind of famous for putting scenes of torture on their, uh, their palace reliefs. But there are so many things that happen that the bad guys do. And I'm like, I hate them already. You don't need to have them murdering pregnant women and piling up their unborn children in a big pile. That's that's not a thing that we needed. That's not a thing this book was lacking. We know that these people are horrific monsters. Please, for the love of God, just stop. It was it was just it was too it was too much, I think. There were just too many things. No, I agree. Just difficult no, to go it's through. like no, it's a lot, and yeah, I I really wish I like remembered how <laughs> how much of that made it in. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't want to say it like ruins the 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 whole thing, but like, it, no, it's it's distracting, and yeah, it's just it's uncomfortable. Like, it's just really uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm I'm clearly I'm trying to find like historical things or at least well, we can talk we can talk a bit about the Babylon thing. Yeah, okay. Okay. Cuz the des- the description of the walls was really nice. It's obviously the Ishtar gate which isn't there at this time period, but we're going to just move on from that. It's a re- it's a nice description. The they've got like the width of the walls and the fact that you could drive a chariot around it. That's yeah, pretty pretty accurate. The fact that there were temples inside and outside the temple. Yep. Uh, inside and outside the temple. Temples inside and outside the city. Yep. Definitely. There are a few things that were less less historically accurate. Ishtar the Mede talks several times about the 2010 gods of, of, of Babylon. That's not a thing. There aren't 2010 gods. You will hear occasionally something like the 100 gods of Hattie because there were a lot of gods, but there weren't anywhere near that many. We also have Marduk as this monster who accepts human sacrifice, which is something that's mentioned two or three times in the book and is not a thing. Mesopotamian history has, is very, very light on human sacrifice. I think the the most famous example is the royal tombs of Or, which is much, much earlier than this book probably not dedicated to Marduk because Marduk was a god of Babylon and he doesn't come to the fore until the the second millennium. And the royal tombs have people in there who were, they're interred, they're buried with their rulers and they most likely clubbed on the back of the head and, and killed prior to being buried. But that's really it. We don't have this people being burnt alive, blood sacrifices of infants. Mesopotamian worship was very similar to what you would see in maybe the Greek and the classical world. It's animal sacrifice. You take an animal to temple, it gets ritually sacrificed, and then the meat is cooked and the gods kind of eat the odor of the meat and it's all very amazing and delicious. And then the priests very quietly afterwards would eat the actual meat. So yeah, human sacrifice, not so much. He's also described as having horns and cloven feet, which is ridiculous. Mesopotamian gods, yeah, yeah, essentially. It's it's like it's the devil, it's Satan. And Mesopotamian gods do have horns, but these horns are described as essentially being small goat horns. Mesopotamian gods have horned crowns that are like big 
cow bull horns. They kind of wrap around the side of the head and go up and they have multiple pairs. So Marduk having like two small horns and cloven feet is absolutely really ridiculous. And I think is just borrowing heavily from Christian imagery. And the last thing that I wanted to go with was Ninorta, who is a warrior deity. Uh, he is an actual god, but he's described as being a lion-headed, winged god. And I think what's happened there is there's been some crosswise because the lion-headed, winged being is the Anzu bird, which is, yes, a divine mytholo mythological creature, not a god, really. And that is one of the things, he is one of the, the monsters that Ninorta defeats. So we've got a bit of a confusion about which is the god and, and which is the, the monster that gets defeated by the god. But you do see some fantastic depictions of, of Anzu in Mesopotamian art and architecture, and it, he's really, really cool. But yeah, he's not an author, so that was, that was a little irritating, but only a little bit. Oh, and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon probably weren't at Babylon. They were probably at Nineveh. So this whole... Beautiful gardens of Babylon. I mean, maybe there were gardens, but they weren't the famous gardens that uh, I think Wilbur Smith is referencing. Well, there's a lot of places that would probably get that wrong, though. I mean, that one scene in like the 2004 Alexander movie, and you see all those like lush gardens of Babylon. I'm like, mm-hmm. The saving grace, I feel like, was, at least for you, was that you get this you get the, the the Babylonian journey, so then you could at least sort of focus on... After oh, okay, being so promised Babylon for the whole of the first book and then not having it, I was very frustrated. So it was nice, ultimately, to, to have the description and to have that, that journey there. Obviously, it's completely ahistorical. Egyptian armies never made it as far as Mesopotamia. There are some clashes but they happen in like the Syro-Palestine area. No one actually goes all the way to Mesopotamia because that's a really long way. So, yeah, that, that didn't kings. happen. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Like, no. Like, even if you did make it, I'd be like, uh, merchants go, kings? Mm -hmm. Merchants, messages, absolutely, yeah. They sit in their fucking palaces and send people away. That's how it works. That's the, that's the benefit of being royalty. Isahat and Ashurbanipal in the near Assyrian period did make it to Egypt and did conquer it. But that's it. That's the, the most extensive military interaction you get between Egypt and Mesopotamia. I just, I, can I just register that, like, it's, it's rare that you would have your actual king go. Like, like, yes, they did. There were several notable historical kings who were like, yes, I need to prove myself in conquest. But... Yeah, no, it's 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 on the rarer side. Like, that I think it, normally... it. I think it was much more common, maybe for Mesopotamia, because we do have like, several kings who were killed in battle. Maybe they didn't do it all the time and for every battle, but it was it was the thing that that did happen. So it 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 was really nice to read about Babylon and just get a, a feel for. It wasn't Babylon that he was describing, but it was nice to to kind of see what he was doing with it. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, that gets me thinking. Like, it, it is an interesting cultural difference because, yeah, if you have a, a, a maybe a greater tradition of, like, shepherd-type kings who do have to kind of travel and go around and the ancient Near East specifically up sort of on the... Like, Anatolia up, I want to say, maybe. 
it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Like, like, because I am thinking, like, you have historical pharaohs. You have a lot who went and and fought on the battlefield, and and expanded. But like after them, because I'm trying to think, like, you have like the famous Battle of Kadesh, right, with Ramesses II, and you have oh God, what's his name? Uh, um, Thutmose III go out and do stuff after Hatshepsut. I don't know, like, like you have pharaohs who go out, especially, you know, but I feel like unless you're going into this period of expansion when you are, like, coming after, like, a, a, a particularly weak pharaoh, a failed pharaoh, or one of the the rare female pharaohs, it is about reestablishing sort of dominance control, and you would, there's this sort of, I do know from, from my little Egyptological training that I did receive, like, yes, it was like a rite of passage. You would especially go and raid into Nubia because you have 3,000 years of Egyptians going down into Nubia and, and making that their traditional conquering grounds because it was, quote unquote, easier. And then you would bring back all the, the wonderful things. So, but I don't know, like, I feel because, like, after the one or two kings who sort of made the initial raids and then maybe one or two expanded after you, but once you had the wealth coming in and you had your tributes, you wouldn't have to because the Egypt, the Egyptians were like homebodies. Like they want, they didn't want to go out. They wanted to stay in their little cradle of the Nile and just wait for the the Nile to flood their homeland and then give them the beer and the dates and the wonderful other things that they could eat. And and I know this is something that that Kara talked about in in her book. And for those not familiar, this is Kara Cooney, who is professor of uh, Egyptology. But in in her books, uh, the the big thing she talks about that sets Egypt apart is that unlike basically everywhere else in the ancient world, you know, all of the places in Mesopotamia and especially in Greece, these are places that are desperately relying on rain. You know, please rain, please rain, come give us our crops. You know, Egypt is that one place where she always talks about the reason that geography played to their advantage, that they lasted so long and they were so successful is because of the unique geographic situation with the Nile, because it would just flood. So they don't have to wait for rain. And that, I think, also then majorly contributes to the idea that, like, you wouldn't have to have your kings sort of go around and help you raid and help you take back more resources. Because, one, they were already lush in natural resources. So anything they brought in was kind of like a luxury. So, yeah, you would have, like, this conquest and expansion, I feel like. And then once you had that, though, yeah, you were sitting pretty because you have food coming every year with the floods and you have your tributaries. And, and, and until the whatever dynasty was in power contracted and then you suddenly they're being cut off because, oh, no, rebellion or, oh, no, you know, you have a weak pharaoh who's just not watching it and you let that resource slip away. Yeah, you didn't you didn't need to go out. So that's why I, I kind of say from what I remember from my Egyptological training, like, yeah, unless you want to go like Hatshepsut left Egypt better than she fucking found it she was a rare success story but because she was a woman and I remember this chapter from Kara's book Topmost like got out from under her regency chiseled her image away and was like okay I'm coming after a woman now I need to assert my dominance and he did he went raiding and he went and won a lot of astonishing military campaigns not because he needed to because she left Egypt in a great place but because he came after a woman or quote unquote a weak ruler not worthy of remembrance. So to me, from what I know, that is why Egyptians would go out raiding if you weren't coming after a weak dynasty and need to reestablish dominance. So 
when I have that context in mind and I, I and I read like this book or this series, it actually makes sense, right? It's already set in the historical second intermediate period. So this is a period where there's a lot of war and you would want pharaohs to kind of go out and fight and, and try to regain control of both kingdoms and, and unite the country again. So it's a bit more believable for me to believe that, okay, Nefer is going out and he's doing the thing. It's easier to believe that Truk and Naja would be out trying to win military victories. The only thing, again, that doesn't make sense is that they would go out of Egypt because if you already have Egypt torn in two, like theoretically, historically, you would not be okay with this and you would want to reunite Egypt. In terms of the plot, them leaving made very little sense to me. It's painted kind of as a, we're going to conquer the world and the the Mesopotamians are really, really rich, so we should go and and take all of their gold. It's as unbelievable as having, like, kings in Greece, like city-states in Greece band together, right? Because, like, you don't want that. You want, you, you... You know, they were historically kind of xenophobic and they would be like, you know, if you're Athenian, you're the best. You don't fucking want like people from Argos or Thebes to come to you. They're clearly foreigners. Same with Sparta. So like the the only time in Greece they would band together is for a big external threat that, that threatens the whole country or the, the whole area, like the Persians. So this to me is as unrealistic as that. You'd be like, why would Athens and Sparta? Them banding together, at least Troc and, and Naja banding together, I, I was okay with that because they're cousins. It it seems still a little bit odd, but you know what, okay. It was leaving the country essentially undefended. Yes, they leave some of the army there, not a lot. And you find out that it's essentially the men too young to have military experience and those so old that they're about to retire. So they they leave some people, but they take almost everyone else with them to fucking Mesopotamia, which is, I don't know, like a four-month journey by foot? Maybe not four months, but it's a long time. And they leave Nefer there. They know that he's like holed up in this abandoned city, building an army, and they just leave him. <laughs> they just leave you him. You know what? It's it's as we're say as we're as we're puzzling through this, it honestly is like a pseudo parallel to the Trojan War, just completely different. But like Agamemnon, right, and Menelaus, they're brothers, and you know they band together. And even though they lead and are kings of different cities, they go on a very long journey together to conquer Troy. And it's very far away. So I'm like, I can see that parallel. But again, it differs then with, there's, it's not like they're, Mintaka is not in, in, in Babylon for 10 years, right? And you're trying to get her back. So that, that then you're like, okay, the first parallel weakens a little. And then you're like, okay, the second parallel weakens because Agamemnon never would have gone to Troy if he didn't have all of Greece under his control, including the subservience of his brother, who's clearly not the high king, you know? He's just, he's a, a lowly king. And and even then, Athens, or Mycenae and Sparta, completely different. They never wanted to be one big city-state. They were not trying to unite all of Greece as 
one country. It was just many kingdoms under the control of a high king who, you know, they were paying tribute to. But, like, I can kind of see maybe where if Wilbur Smith fancied himself at all, some kind of big classicist or history aficionado outside of Egypt, which I feel like he probably would because, like, aristocratic white dude in Africa, it's all the signs of, like, he'd be a classicist too. So, like, unless he's pulling kind of from that and then adapting that to his circumstance, it doesn't make sense. But that's the closest parallel I I could find. I don't know, like, like... Do you think he was trying to pull sort of from the Greek mythology? I I mean, maybe not consciously, but there are definite parallels there. And they they end up in, obviously, in Mesopotamia, and Ishtar tells them it's going to take you four years, I think, to outlast the city and to get in. And the only reason they make it in is because Ishtar shows them a secret route, which involves them sneaking in in disguise, which... I don't know if it's a deliberate Trojan horse nod, but I like to think maybe it is. So there are definite parallels there. But it's fun to, you know what, that's what makes it fun to think about as a historian and not just a casual reader, because we have the benefit of, we know history. And even if we're not subject matter experts in exactly what he's talking about, we have some frame of reference that other people might not get. So I do, I don't know, like, I, I guess... Do you think your your reaction would be wildly different if you did not come into it with your historical background? No, because I think the Mesopotamian section is small enough that a lot of my responses are not dependent on that. It didn't surprise me, given how he treats generally non-Egyptian, quote-unquote, foreign people in the book, all of the the African characters are hypersexualized. Ishtar the Mede is hypersexualized, like, and very orientalized. It's bizarre. So that what he did in Babylon didn't surprise me at all. But I think there's there's enough else in the book that I I did not enjoy and did not like that is not reliant on me having a historical background. It's relying on me being a woman and someone who doesn't particularly enjoy graphic violence, especially unnecessary. It's graphic and it's gratuitous. I didn't feel like a lot of it added anything really to the story. Although I, I don't know if you would have felt better. Like sometimes I think if you'd left out the graphic violence and only had like the I'm sure as he thought of it, the pleasurable sexy times trying to be there i don't know if i would have enjoyed it more if you just have the sex and not the violence i think like, I it's always enjoyed a, it a little more because so much of i mean a lot of the violence is sexual assault and it's graphic sexual assault and if you take that away i mean you still have some bizarre sex scenes and you still have some gratuitous violence, but nowhere near as much. The fact that so much of the overly explicit violent acts are perpetrated upon women was very, very uncomfortable reading. And I am someone with very little like trauma related to sexual experience, or like almost none. And I found that uncomfortable just because I'm a woman and because the characters being violated and being abused were women. How someone with trauma and 
who was a survivor of sexual assaults, I wouldn't recommend this book. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it anyway, to be brutally honest, but I absolutely would not recommend it to someone who has been through any kind of, really any kind of sexual assaults. Yeah, no, for sure. And it, it's interesting how much this book took a graphically violent turn, even from the first one. Because, like, that's the thing. Like, I'm always a bit shocked because I'm like, it's the same author. It's set in the same world. You have at least one same character. But River God manages to tread that line and still be graphic and, and pretty violent. But, like, not in the way that this book went, right? So... I, I I do remember vaguely that like out of all the book series when I tell people I'm like oh yeah just read River God right I don't tell people read the whole series I usually tell people just read the one book and I feel like after reading this there's nothing that would make me reassess that approach so there's there's nearly 10 years in between the publication of River God and Warlock River God was 93 Warlock was 2001 but I think that's because Seventh Scroll was written in between. Oh, yeah. It might help account for the drastic differences that we see in, in the writing style. But no, I I didn't – the first half I enjoyed more, but as a whole I didn't particularly enjoy the book. I don't think the plot was compelling enough. I don't think any plot is compelling enough to make up for the sheer amount of sexual violence that it has. And I, I just – I enjoyed River God a lot more. It was objectively a better book. And this doesn't have like there aren't there are very very few lighthearted relief moments in this one. Yeah, in, this is like a downer all the in, way through. In River Gods, like yeah, they were running for their lives and struggling to get their kingdom back, and there was this star-crossed lovers thing going on. You have a lot of the same components, but there's a thread of comic relief running through it, and I think a large part of that actually is Taita's first-person narrative. I do wonder if how much of a different book this would be if you had that like self-obsessed. And I know I complained about it bitterly in in the first two episodes we did, but I miss it now. I would like it back because I think it would provide a little bit of levity in amongst what's a very heavy read. Yeah, I. It's interesting that you mention all of this because you're echoing the comments that I've heard before from other people who if I'd managed to find anyone it's actually quite rare that I've managed to find people at least in my our generation who've, who've actually read it but uh, when I do find those people they consistently say the same thing which is River God is the pinnacle it's the first book it's the best book and then they kind of go like every book from there on out is worse written it's not as engaging. Like the plot just goes to shit. You bring in a lot more of this like pseudo magical, like completely just off the grid element. And again, I read the whole series a very long time ago. The most recent one was the fifth book in the series, which came out in like 2017. So that's the last time I even visited that world. And the space between the last two books was like 2014 and 2017. So even then, like I kind of like read the one in 2014, kind of forgot about it. Then I made the cho choice to not reread when I read the new one. So I just read the new one. And the thing is you could treat each new book kind of as like a standalone, even though it's like part of a series, there's enough space between them that like, I just didn't feel like it was a true series in the sense of like, much continuity and that you had to read them like I honestly could have read these books in out of order and probably been okay like it does actually 
have, having read the whole series, it does actually help to read them in order, but like you don't need to. But I, I think that we need to prepare ourselves that like the old adage is true. The first book is the best book and it only goes down and you kind of have to go with it in terms of just your plot lines aren't going to make a lot of sense. And there's going to be a lot more of this like weird magic thing. And cause he gets more powerful. Like he's a magus in this one, but I'm, I'm pretty sure by like the 2017 Pharaoh book, he's like full blown, just mage magician, like spoiler for next few books. I don't remember where it is, but like, I remember there's like this dream sequence where he like goes out in water and then suddenly like, he literally is in conversation with like, the goddess Ishtar, and she's like, oh yes, I am Inanna, I am Ishtar, I am your patron, I am the one who is endowing you with, like, the magic, and you're like, okay, he's talking to the goddess because he is now a being of magic, and I'm pretty sure she, like, says this at some point, um, or maybe that's what I uh, hope or wished that she said, I don't even remember, all I know is that it definitely gets crazy, so all I can say is if you're going to continue to read with us, one, I congratulate you for sticking with us. But two, it gets pretty wild. And, you know, if you are a person who likes to deviate a lot from history and reality, then welcome, because that's where we're going. Um, the first book is the most historically accurate. And yeah, so I was trying to think the other day, Megan. Why did I, like, I really just wanted you to read River God with me because I always want people to read River God. So I was kind of like, why am I insisting that we read the entire series for the podcast and for ourselves? And I think, honestly, the closest answer I had was like, I don't know anyone who actually has read this through the whole series recently, right? If I find someone, it's like, oh yeah, I read them a long time ago and I don't really remember them. So I, I feel like, I wanted to reread the whole series again and I just needed an excuse to do it. And I feel like I, I needed to bring someone along who would, who is similar enough that you could point the, the historical stuff. You could point out the inaccurate stuff. You could laugh at the right moments with me and also be as horrified in the same moments with me. So I do apologize. I feel like I didn't give you enough warning about what the series was, but also to be fair, I reread River God every couple years because it's a fun read and a fun read listen. Yeah, I have not touched the rest of this, though, in many, many years. And so I, it was probably like, I didn't remember how crazy and bad it could get. And I and I wanted to, to drag someone with me through it. So if you feel taken advantage of, I am sorry. No, no, not in the slightest. And I, I did, for all my complaining, I did enjoy River God. I did not terribly enjoy Warlock, but uh, I read fast enough that, you know what, it's a couple of hours of my life. I'm okay with that. Would you recommend River God, not River God, would you recommend Warlock to other people having reread it again? Probably not. I have two friends I can think of who would probably read it the way we do and try to put on a more analytical hat. And and also these are safe recommends because I know also that they are not the recipients of any kind of graphic sexual assault or other assault. So like, I guess I would maybe be careful in recommendations, but I don't know. I have friends who like maybe would appreciate reading it just for like other things. So I would say a cautious Yes, but I would really make sure to choose who. It wouldn't be like a general recommendation. Yeah, but it, it kind of tracks with 
the pattern anyway. Like, I wanted you to read it because I knew you could, like, handle it. If I was doing the podcast, I guess, with someone else, there's no way I probably would have been like, and let's read beyond the one book, right? So, I don't know. What about you? I I don't think I would. I think I, I would say if you want a novel set in ancient Egypt, go with River God. I wouldn't suggest, definitely not Warlock. I obviously can't speak about the others. It's just, it's not, the plot isn't compelling enough for me to have found it an enjoyable read. And without the sexual violence, without the, just without the graphic violence and the weird sex, it would have been an okay book. It wouldn't be something that I would necessarily read again. And it probably still wouldn't be something I recommended to people because it's just, the plot just is not that compelling. I didn't feel particularly close to any of the characters. And and we spoke about this last time. It's It's so black and white. There are no compelling explanations, no motives for the bad guys apart from like greed and being power hungry. And the good guys are unrelentingly good. Like there's, I think Nefa has a couple of petulant, childish moments. I think that's as far as it goes. And Ninataka is, I mean, she's super cool. And then she has petulant childish moments where she's like, Nefa can't tell me what to do. I'm going to go and get myself captured by the enemy because of course I'm going to do that. Like that's that's as close as you get to character flaws really with any of them. And it just, it doesn't make for particularly compelling or interesting reading. I guess, would you be likely to, if you recommended River God, would you be likely to just tell them the book and not even say it's a series? Like, I might. I, I think I would... I'd probably give them a warning, honestly, because if if I enjoy a book, I look and see what else is written by that author. And if I see there's a series, I'm going to try the series. So I wouldn't want someone accidentally stumbling on this. I think I'd probably say River God is great. It's the first in a series. I would not recommend, I suspect I won't recommend the rest of them, but I definitely won't recommend Warlock. And if you choose to read it, be aware there's a lot of violence and sexual assault in it. So kind of read at your own risk. Yeah, I know for sure. Like, I definitely, I can't avoid the fact that it's a series. So I think, yeah, I as well, over the years, have been like, River God is a great book. It's part of a series, but I, I usually sort of say, it's the first, it's the best. You can stop there because there's a time jump and everyone you love is dead. So read at your own risk. But like, also, it's the only book written in first person. So um, yeah, I just say it's the first, it's the best and stop there. I, I guess. In these last two minutes or whatever we have, predictions for the next book. And I will say that book three is called The Quest. And from what I vaguely remember, Taita, this is the book where he goes out into the desert. And this is the one, I believe, where he is questing to find, like, the source of his magical power. So I think the next one is, like, where he goes and... Um, it, it like takes place basically in the wilderness and you don't get any of these cities and these characters. It's like him finding the mat, the source of the magic. And then vaguely at the end, it ties it back to like, he has to come out of the desert to figure out what's going on. But like, if, if I remember, it's like him in the desert finding the magic. Hmm. I would hope for a return to some levity, but I, I suspect we're not in for that. Maybe the best I can hope for is there won't be any sexual assault this time. <laughs> Which would be hard if it's just a dude out in the sands. 
That's what I'm hoping for. So, yeah, I don't remember this one because I I really like when I read the series, I I read one and then I read this one and then well, I, I in the past like this is the second time I'm reading it, but and then I kind of skip everything and then go to like the last one just because I think that involves the Minoans. But yeah, so I, I have absolutely zero memory of it. So I'm going to, it's like reading it for the first time again. So yeah, I can't really predict anything beyond just if this is the turn that I think it might be, I hope that he leans hard into the mystical, magical side and you get more of like the mythology brought in. That would be nice. And it would be nice to have some kind of explanation for what the hell is going on. Because he seems to be the only person with magical powers. And right. And like, why. my two things are, if you're going to do historical fiction, I want you to lean into the historical part or the fiction part. Or if you're going to try to weave them together, do it really well or don't do it at all. So I'm kind of like, we've clearly deviated from anything vaguely historical at all. So since we clearly, he made that choice to go toward the more mythological and just magic part. I, I desperately want him to lean into that because I swear to God, if he tries to just tread this history part too, I'm going to lose it. So please go all magic. So please, the next one, be just fucking crazy mythological, please. Fingers That's what crossed. I want. Fingers crossed. So well, we should We should leave it there. Everyone, thank you for sticking with us. We do have some fun stuff coming off, up in the rest of the season. So there will be levity again. There will be amusing times i mean if nothing else gods of egypt is a hilarious film so join us for that one it's coming so stick with us please well that's it for warlock and for now we're saying goodbye to wilbur smith he'll be back again in a couple of episodes time for the quest but please join us next week we have the wonderful dr christian casey egyptologist extraordinaire he's going to be joining us to discuss the video game assassin's creed origins which is an excellent game and you get to hear Lexi and I and Christian all being very, very geeky and nerdy. But about Egypt, which is really what you listen for. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review. And you can also follow us on social media at The Reading Party Podcast. If you'd like to leave us a book or movie suggestion, then email us at thereadingpartypod at gmail.com. See you next week.